Hello and uh, welcome to my digital talk. Uh, today I have a very special guest, an extraordinary personality, uh, a living legend, one of his kind, um, Mr. Malmgren. Harold Malmgren does not need an introduction. However, I should introduce, to, uh, introduce him to those uh, uh, of you who haven't uh, met him yet or haven't had the chance to read some of his analysis. Uh, currently, he serves as president of uh, Mount Green Global um, Advisory Hub, which is uh, basically a company, a consulting company advising global institutional asset managers. And he is one of the most recognized experts on global trade, uh, geostrategy and geopolitics. Um, and he also has uh, served under four US president's administrations. So he brings in also a lot of experience uh, when it comes uh, to uh, assessing um, the current US administration and also previous US administrations. But today, the topic of our discussion is focused on something much bigger. We would like to provide a kind of a helicopter view, a kind of a 10,000 miles view on global affairs. And what we are going to discuss with Harold is the global system transformation. So if there is one particular event that um, this COVID-19 pandemic has exposed uh, throughout the last year, it is that uh, all these transformational processes that have been uh, under, have been basically taking place within the socio-economic systems of the current uh, global system have been uh, in fact taking place already prior to the pandemic and the pandemic has accelerated some of these transitions and this is what i would like to discuss with harold Malmgren today uh, because we are witnessing uh, unprecedented uh, speed and scope of uh, transformation in the global economy, in global finance, in global trade, but also in technology. Uh, so having this in mind, uh, I would like to ask you, dear Harold, what is your take? What is your now primary view, let's put it that way, uh, on what is going on um, following COVID-19 when it comes to technology for Point zero. What are what is also your anticipation for these transitional processes, and where do you see the most uh, important shifts in the upcoming uh, months or years? Well, Belina, it's a pleasure to talk with you <clears throat> because, um, apart from being fun to talk with you. Uh, you have a, a vision of global power structure that is much broader than most of the analysts. Um, and um, so let me begin with, uh, where, where is the, the popular discussion, the mainstream media, uh, the speeches of politicians today? It's all about 
broken supply chains. Um, and let's get back to 2019 because everything was rosy. Uh, and now it's all been disrupted and let's end the lockdowns everywhere. Let's, let's go back. But the world has, is, has been changing. It was changing, as you say, it's changing faster uh, now. And so when, when uh, there is a discussion, we, we need to get back to globalization. We have to get summits in motion. We have to get multilateral talks in motion. Um, in most countries, uh, the people are not thinking about globalization. They're thinking about their own circumstances. And in the meantime, industry, to, to the extent it's moving, is not moving in relation to what's happening in China anymore, uh, China, because China is also slowing down. Its economy looks like it's barely growing, uh, even though the public figures are strong. But <clears throat> um, And Europe is in, in, a, in a period of economic decay. Uh, partly due to the pandemic, partly due to other things. So the world, but if we go back to 2019 uh, for a moment, it was a year in which world industry was slowing down. There was a notable contraction underway. And that hasn't changed. That had nothing to do with the pandemic. So where we are now is um, technology has been moving. And it's moving faster now than it was over the last 40 or 50 years. It's what I call industry 4.0. Um, what we what we have learned to make with with big furnaces and uh, iron ore uh, and steel structures is, is history. Um, what what is now happening is an entirely new way of fabricating um, what we need. Uh, part of it is called 3D printing. Um, the ability to send specifications, MIT or some industrial enterprise far, to far parts of the world and instruct the making of that thing without, without uh, big furnaces, without uh, elaborate production lines, without large scale production. Um, and it's primarily due to the emergence of new man-made materials, materials that are not dug out of the ground, but are, are created by humans. And these new materials, in many cases, are stronger than steel or titanium or other traditional metals. Um, and it's difficult for everyone to understand, but this is really transformational. But what's more important is this work can be done on a different scale, much smaller scale. In fact, the new industrial structure we're going to see is not based on large-scale production. You know, it's not Henry Ford discovering bigger the production, the lower the cost. It's going to be Small small scale production is efficient and maybe more efficient than large scale. A break with the past. So new materials, a change in the scale, and then 
the ability to do this in far in remote places, um, greater localization. What it also means is less digging up the earth and moving material thousands of miles across the Atlantic or Pacific. Um, so um, for, for economies, what is happening on a global scale is not it's becoming less important. And what is important is what is happening in the region of the people making and consuming. Um, it's a new opportunity for progress to be made on a regional or local basis without regard to what happens among the great powers. Um, so this is really important. And by the way, it has big implications for um, the issues of renewables versus non-renewables. I think the long-term trend line is that we will use less and less of the non-renewable materials. We will dig up less and less of the earth. We will more and more create what we need. And this is going to have much bigger consequences for climate change, positive consequences than anybody's thinking about. So we, I want to look first at uh, not not at Russia, China, and the U.S., because I think all of this is not related to, it's more focused, it's more regional. I would want to look at what is possible at the regional level among a smaller number of countries. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have uh, to unpack a little bit, uh, because uh, what you've mentioned with, uh, the import with the increasing importance of uh, regions is very much also related to uh, two issues. One is, of course, that we are in the middle of a new industrial revolution that is very much linked also to the transformational processes that you've mentioned. And the second is that we are also uh, in the middle of a new systemic rivalry between two systems of power. And I would like to ask you, how do you link all of this together? Now, if we have in mind that uh, in the, during the previous industrial revolutions, there were indeed also two competitors, uh, so basically, uh, the first and the second industrial revolutions were the ones that Great Britain, that made Great Britain this global power. And then uh, if we look back to the last, uh, to the third industrial revolution, uh, it was about the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, once again, two competitors. And uh, right now we are in a similar situation with China and with the United States, trying to um, basically ride the wave of the fourth industrial revolution. We don't know exactly what the outcome of this competition will be in terms of digitalization, in terms of technological breakthroughs, in terms of who uh, the winner of this, um, of this industrial revolution will be. Do you think that this will be decisive uh, for uh, the outcome of the transformation of the global system transformation? Because the winner impose its rules, its norms, its standards, its moral standing, if you like, or do you think that this is irrelevant? Uh, this is a fundamentally important question, but um, the presumption of um, 
the media and much of political science is that China is on the rise. And the question is, will it eclipse America or will it not? Um, I, I, China is has been growing fast uh, and has been building a military capability um, to, let's say, defend its position. But I, I've been looking at China for, since Mao, or since even before Mao. I have met with some of the most senior Chinese a couple of times over the decades. Um, China is at a moment where it has to choose between more centralization, more more uh, 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 central direction of everything, or whether it can continue with a fair amount of freedom for individual innovation, uh, for new startups and technology and businesses. And I, I think the centralization is going to overwhelm uh, and it will be crippled. Now, I watched in the 80s all these stories about Japan was going to emerge and pass the U.S. and it would become number one. And, of course, it stumbled and fell into decades of stagnation. I think China is on that path. But <clears throat> I think U.S. domination is also going to erode uh, simply because it would be possible for individual countries to do what they want to do independently. Um, and the dependence of everybody on world trade is going to die down. I think world trade is not going to keep growing. Uh, I don't think we're going to have shipping of manufacturers far and wide. I think we're going to have less and less of that, more and more making things locally. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not so much bothered by this power rivalry. The U.S. wants to have everybody on some kind of rules-based system. Everybody follows the same rules, although the U.S. is not saying there is only one set of rules. The Chinese are saying you've got to do it our way, and lately they've been saying and you can't even consider theoretically alternatives because we are the one true way. Um, it's like a cult being uh, imposed on the world, and I think the pushback will be huge. So I think the true powers slowly become less relevant to where we are going, at least for a while. Um, we can get into military in a few moments, but first, let's look at what is happening. Um, even the European Union, uh, as a single point of um, integration is under pressure and fraying. Um, there is um, there is disintegration. It, it's visible with the vaccine debacle, but it's happening in all kinds of areas of EU uh, efforts to integrate more and running up against um, problems. And then within the EU, we have uh, fraying political centers. Germany is now uh, see, uh, seeming to lose coherence politically within Germany. And France, the same. Um, the the um, power structures are, um, in a sense, uh, crumbling. 
And in that process, this allows innovation, um, new initiatives. Uh, and so what, what is been the response? Um, we, we can see that um, the, um, some parts of the EU, like Spain, have been concentrating on opening a pathway into northern Africa through Morocco. And we can see Italy has been trying to see its future as more of a Mediterranean economy engine. And now we see Turkey, even Turkey, who would have thought of that five years ago, is opening up pathways to the Middle East and to Africa uh, with its adventures in places like Azerbaijan. Um, uh, we see new initiatives coming from the Baltic countries to open the way from the Baltic Sea downwards to the Mediterranean through what is what was the uh, Soviet bloc, Eastern Europe, and there's now the countries of, the, of Europe uh, that are to the east uh, of the, the original six or seven countries that made up the EU. All of this is underway. Nobody talks about it, but the decisions being made are independent of each other. Um, Professor Tantrum, I think a colleague of yours, has done hugely useful work on explaining to the world all of these developments. And uh, we can see the same process going on in the Pacific with some of the lesser countries feeling they don't want to be dominated by China, uh, formulating ways of interacting with each other. Uh, and so, um, yes, the dragon bear, the, the China, Russia, rivalry with the U.S. It's interesting, but I think it's slowly becoming uh, less relevant. Mm -hmm. So um, I will uh, actually have Ms. Professor Tanghum as uh, my guest uh, next month. Uh, so I hope very much to discuss uh, with him the connectivity projects um, and um, uh, possibilities in the wider Mediterranean area. Uh, however, I would like to ask you that what, what in your opinion would, which actually in your opinion, which regions will be uh, relevant uh, and will lead the way uh, on this uh, global industry transformation? Uh, where will be um, the most, um, so to say, important uh, uh, global power competition observed um, in your in your view. Well, the question of global power is an interesting one. There's political power and military power. Political power was important uh, in the last few decades because it involved which country had money and how much could they bring to the other country. So the U.S. had power because it had money in the post-World War II period. And then there's the military power. U.S. has still is the dominant political power. But um, there's less money flowing around through state-sponsored flows 
Um, the Chinese tried to build up on that model with the Belt and Road Initiative, but now they're running into all kinds of problems and pushback from uh, recipient countries. And it's looking like it may come to a dead end before long. The U.S. doesn't have the ability to just push money out. Where, where the rivalry may, may eventually evolve uh, is in the military area. But unfortunately for China, China is maybe 30 years behind the U.S. So I'm not really focused on that except to say that uh, the press and media have completely overlooked a transformation of the U.S. military um, assertion of power. Uh, even politicians in Washington haven't really been aware of it. So let me take two examples. Uh, one is Europe. Um, in the, just in the in the, the last few months, uh, the U.S. reactivated what we call the Second Fleet, our Navy, the Second Fleet, and established in recent weeks in Norfolk, Virginia, something called the Joint Force Command. Not Joint Forces, Joint Force Command. Now, what is it? What it is is U.S., U.K., the four Scandinavian countries, and a few other countries, including Netherlands, and Portugal applying to join, even Bulgaria applying to join, um, are have established joint military um, operations capabilities in case of conflict. And it's been done silently. It's sort of part of NATO, sort of not part of NATO. Uh, it's NATO considers it helpful addition. But the joint force uh, is covers the area from uh, far into the Arctic all the way down to um, uh, places like Albania, where there is a very big base. Um, recently, four B-1 bombers were flown to the Arctic from the U.S. Nobody really thought about what, what the heck is that all about. But it was part of the Joint Force Command of putting the backstop in place. Uh, and those planes were met in the air by the Swedish um, Air Force, uh, welcoming them, even though Sweden theoretically is not part of all this. Uh, all of this and all of these different militaries are working on a single uh, electronic integration command structure. Uh, in effect, a new military has been created. Um, just silently, and the, in the Pacific, the U.S., um, Japan, and Australia have become highly integrated so that they are functioning as one military, uh, with the addition that Australia is now building a de industrial defense capability. They are, for example, building submarine, military submarines in Australia that even the U.S. will purchase. Um, India is may be drawn into this. Um, so these are new configurations. The public isn't really aware of them, but do they show power? Yes. And when you look at it that way, Chinese 
capability is slowly being pushed back. Um, uh, so, and Russia is not a player in this. Russia doesn't have the resources militarily. Russia can be provocative and troublesome at the at the perimeter, um, you know, with hacking and misinformation, um, mischief in the financial area, but. Um, but they really are not in Russia cannot possibly tolerate any hard exchange of weaponry. It would be devastating for Russia to have any any form of land, sea or air conflict, even for a few days. Uh, so all of this is also in the background. But I'm what interests me is the formation of countries um that are now exploring new new modes of transit um, to use the the new capabilities of industry to make things anywhere. It's being discovered that what we what one makes and where they make it and how they make it is going to be very different from what what it's been over the last hundred years, and this means opening the way. From uh, from the Baltic Sea all the way down through Eastern Europe, um, and and into North Northern Africa, there will be huge opportunities. I think there'll be huge opportunities in North Africa, going through Algiers and Morocco, um, and that is slowly going to bring to the to Central Africa the advances that they have long been unable to uh, exploit. Mm -hmm. However, if we consider that uh, there are new uh, fluid uh, configurations of uh, state actors along geopolitical and geoeconomic interests, so we should also consider the fact that uh, they need uh, supply chains. and. Looking at the map, uh, and particularly the case now with the Suez Canal, made it quite clear that uh, they are still very much the same uh, global choke points, uh, which are most significant for the global flows of uh, trade. Uh, so basically, global flows of uh, goods and um, services and capital and so on. And uh, the Suez Canal is one of uh, these global choke points. Uh, Many of them are along uh, significant maritime routes. And given that uh, reality, do you think that uh, new uh, global supply chains uh, will emerge out of the reconfigurations? Or do you think that the reconfigurations will actually provoke a kind of disruption of these global supply chains in a way that um, we will witness uh, even more disruptions, uh, which, of course, might unleash cascading effects on uh, global trade and global economy. Just to give once again the example, with the blockade of uh, the Suez Canal, uh, this is such a costly um, event. I mean, the very reason that it took days to, um, you know, to clear the canal for, uh, you know, for the transport. Um, it's uh, it's it's it costs huge amounts of uh, money to do so. So, uh, do you think that this will have an effect uh, on the global supply chains? This kind of reconf reconfigurations, 
or do you do you see it rather as an uh, as an emergence of uh, new supply chains? You mentioned the Arctic, and we know that um, um, most of the Arctic countries, uh, but particularly non-Arctic countries such as China, are trying to already. Uh, uh, step uh, into this new economic space uh, due to the um, environmental changes and the climate change basically there will be a possibility for a new transport route there probably much earlier than anticipated uh, likely in the next uh, 10 years 15 years maybe Another one you mentioned also with the connectivity from north to to the south, uh, you know, from the northern Europe uh, to to Africa. Uh, so basically, also bypassing some of these uh, major ge uh, geopolitical um, um, spaces and specifically global choke points. What is your view on that? How do you see this in the big picture? The importance of uh, the current global systems. Um, uh, disruptions and reconfigurations. Well, about supply chains, um, from about the 19, late 1970s until now, um, after my work in, in government public service, I, I uh, had deep involvement with a handful of the world's very biggest manufacturing firms. And so I'm really familiar with the concepts, for example, that Toyota brought to the world. It's called just-in-time inventory. Don't hold inventory. Time the, the arrival of all, all uh, materials and equipment needed and parts needed um, to when you need them uh, from around the world and go for the cheapest source and and concentrate your effort on um, on just in time cheapest sources and then um, at the time of the tsunami earthquake the last big one in japan it became a severe disruption to the entire oil industry of the world uh, because the microprocessors used in most high-end automobiles everywhere all came from one small area uh, in Japan. Uh, and that after that, the conversation among supply chain managers were, mm, just in time, it's great, but now we need just in case. We have to start thinking about what if there's a disruption of any of these chains. And that work has been going on steadily now for a dozen, you know, 10 years, and it's continuing. And all over the world, supply chain managers are thinking, can we bring the supply, semi-sourcing of supplies closer, closer to the market, closer to the primary companies? Um, do we really have to use the oceans and the air to move stuff far when we might as well do it close by? Now, that is well underway. That's not new. It's intensifying now. But what we see day to day is a lot of supply chains interrupted because it takes years for odds and ends of supply chains to show themselves. We, don't, we weren't aware uh, in the case of vaccines for the pandemic that m many of the ingredients came from India. 
and you know, we assume it was somehow manufactured right nearby, and and uh, it turns out not so. But changing the sources, changing what you use, takes time. It's it's not a it's not a tomorrow morning change. It's a, over the next five or ten years. How do we reconfigure what materials we use? and where we assemble them or pull them together to make things. So I think that process is is underway, has been underway uh, when we shifted from just in time to just in case. Um, and we'll continue. But most of industry, big, big industry worldwide is now thinking strategically. Can we make these things more close to central hubs. Now, let me give an example. The vaunted German auto industry, we think of it as everything coming from Germany, uh, but Japan, particularly Toyota, uh, in the late 70s and 80s and 90s, began moving a large part of their world production to the U.S. And today, um, if you wanted to buy a made-in-USA automobile with the highest U.S. content, you have no choice. You have to buy a Toyota. You might have might find a few Hondas that have this. GM, Ford, and Chrysler can't do that. They don't have that capability uh, because Japan makes most of its stuff for the U.S. market inside the U.S. But now, interestingly, the German, the big three Germans have been studying this and have been slowly t dipping their toes in the state of Alabama in the U.S. And today I found recently that Mercedes-Benz, of course, everyone knows, makes a lot of SUVs. But the biggest source of SUVs for Mercedes-Benz actually is not Germany anymore, it's Alabama. And of the production in Alabama, more than half is exported from the U.S. to China and other and Latin America. In other words, the U.S. has become an export platform for Germany. And sourcing of materials and parts, it's all becoming Americans. It, it's closing, closing around that hub. So I think we just have to assume that long-distance supply chains are slowly going to disappear. Now, the rem that remains the question of uh, special materials like rare earth materials. But we're finding two solutions. Number one, we, we're finding there are more, more rare earth metal materials right, around, right in the neighborhood if we just go looking for them, even in the US. Um, or they're in oddball places like Greenland, which is rich with rare earth materials. <clears throat> or we are discovering we can ask MIT to generate some new materials that aren't there but will do the job. And all of that is going, that business of new materials is really blossoming. Um, it's it's um, the interesting side point is that over the last few years, most of the students at places like MIT were interested in electrical engineering or financial engineering, but nobody was interested in mechanical engineering and material science. But now that's the hot subject. I'm just doing everything in new ways. 
with our hands or with our minds. Uh, so supply chains, yes, big issue right at the moment. And then, of course, you have something like transportation choke points. But I think we're going to open up a completely new mode of transportation. And what I foresee is that long distance shipping that requires going through the through through the uh, Suez or through Panama, it's going to be less important because we're not going to ship so much stuff so far. We're going to ship less, less sea, but less heavy traffic. So, so in other words, I wouldn't invest in the long in the future of big uh, container ships. I would invest in um, new new sources and new transportation modes in the regions, um, waterways in Europe, uh, railroads in the in northern Africa. Railroads will be really big throughout northern Africa. Mm -hmm. But then again, if you look at uh, how each of the industrial revolutions was also shaped by a new way of uh, of, uh, of energy uh, resources, now starting with. Uh, the steam power, for use of fossil fuels, then moving to electrical power, then moving to nuclear power. Do you think that the new industrial revolution will be shaped now by the introduction of, uh, well, the increased introduction of uh, renewables? Or do you think that we are going to come up with a new way of, uh, of uh, energy, energy supply? Or do you think that we just go back to the traditional ways of uh, energy supply? So obviously this kind of, what, what, what kind of sense do you make of uh, this uh, uh, major decarbonization, decarbonization uh, agenda by the, um, by the developed economies? That's my first question. And how about, uh, you know, you mentioned also the case of uh, rare earth um, materials however we also know that these are very very dirty industries and the only you know the only reason why for instance developed economies uh, basically shifted the production of uh, this uh, in exploration and production of these rare materials to third countries was the reason that they wanted uh, to have it clean at home and in the direct neighborhood uh, meanwhile uh, european union member states are dependent to over 90 percent uh, on exports from china when it comes to rare materials and to some extent also on uh, other third countries. Uh, so do you think that this is going to be a case now combined with this kind of decarbonization and greening of economies uh, that uh, it's going to be in a conflict with, uh, you know, with uh, these ambitious agendas? Or do you think that in, 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 it's uh, coming back home in reality? Like you said, like you pointed out, there are also other things to protect the way. Well, look, the, the big countries, Europe, U.S., and Asia, have been exploring all kinds of different energies, some successfully, some not. Um, but we've wasted money and time fooling with um, wind power, uh, where the machinery to catch the wind power is hugely costly not only in money but in terms of energy needed to to make the parts um or uh, the 
we we um, we've been trying to find ways not to use coal, uh, not to use oil and gasoline as much, but we've spent a lot of money going down um, dead ends or dark alleys. Um, whereas longer term, <coughs> the the options. Um, we, we've, in a sense, swept aside because of fear, uh, um, nuclear, um, nuclear types of energy generation. Um, now, the progress has been made in nuclear energy, but not visibly. For example, uh, we have Marines posted in, a, in faraway places in the Arctic. And you get a few hundred Marines sitting in a place and they need energy. And there's no power lines. What do they use? Well, nowadays, they can make very small nuclear reactors. And the cost is not that high. Um, let me say that we even can use 3D printing to make a small nuclear reactor just to source power for a small number of people stationed somewhere in a remote place. Um, it's amazing how much change has been going on. Um, but governments have been shy because of uh, the perception that nuclear power is unsafe. And of course, Germany led the way in just banning, uh, it was mindless banning of nuclear power, which has put Europe hostage of all sorts of other sources of energy. It put Germany in a position where it needed more pipelines from Russia. Um, now, in the US, we've had actually abundance of gas, and we probably have enough gas for the US. If we were to just revert to natural gas, we probably have enough um, gas to last uh, two or three centuries without much change. But we've been shunning away, not, you know, lately uh, the, the theme is let's not build more pipelines, but natural gas is clean burning. So we've been exploring around wasting time and money. Ten years ago, I was an advisor for a while on a Japanese project sponsored by the Ministry of Economy and, and Trade um, to put satellites up to collect uh, power from the sun well above, you know, out, out in outer space and transport the power to Earth by what's called Tesla transmission. Nothing to do with Tesla cars, but Nikola Tesla, the scientist. And that research continues and is now being looked at by national labs in the US and other places. Um, I think somewhere out there 10, 20 years, but not forever. Um, so we have uh, hydrogen power, uh, which is thought to be unworkable, but some companies I know think it's, it is workable, uh, in, not in the US, but some companies in other countries. 
Um, so I'm not, you know, I, I don't think the story of energy is closed, what the sources are. Maybe the biggest choke point is storage of energy, that is batteries. How do we get, we can get energy to places, but how do we keep it there for a while? Um, but that, that awful lot of research is going into that also. So I, I just don't see the energy problem in the way that everybody else is talking about it as here, this is all fixed and we have no few options. I don't think that's true. I think you have lots of options. Mm -hmm. And what is your anticipation about the uh, likelihood of a um, second uh, Cold War-like scenario between China and uh, United States? You said at the beginning that you are actually not convinced of, uh, you know, of a systemic rivalry between these uh, two powers. Um, and you've also outlined uh, your reasons why you think that also China is going to face a lot of uh, problems at home, so domestic problems. Uh, and also you've pointed mm -hmm. out that uh, the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, is actually already facing uh, serious issues. However, do you think that um, this kind of uh, systemic competition between uh, Washington and Beijing will further deepen? And do you think that uh, it would uh, affect uh, global affairs uh, and specifically the relations with third countries, uh, be it rivals or competitors or allies? What is your thought? Ah, I think that we lost uh, Harold for a moment. Uh, I will be waiting for him to return to the digital uh, room um, in a second. Uh, so uh, basically, what, um, uh, why I asked this final question on this technology is uh, basically linked to my main thesis that uh, this uh, systemic competition between China and uh, United States uh, is uh, going to encompass all these relevant uh, transformational processes in the socioeconomic uh, systems the way we know them, the, the way they have been actually built and established and further shaped um, in the last uh, 30 years. And now with the emergence of a second uh, um, system of power, um, which is uh, Beijing, uh, there's going to be a kind of a um, clash or a conflict, confrontation, not necessarily uh, in terms of military, uh, direct military conflict, however, uh, in a sense of a competition um, to control and to influence uh, the socio-economic systems. So uh, my personal take is that uh, it would uh, um, be in the interest of Beijing to uh, facilitate uh, its alternative uh, networks. Uh, through alternative supply chains. Uh, this is already being the case, uh, for instance, in um, uh, Central Asia and um, in um, parts of uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, where uh, Beijing has already started uh, building this kind of connectivities uh, within the Belt and Road uh, Initiative uh, projects, uh, so, to, so to say, to um, connect uh, China with uh, third countries, mostly 
focused on uh, the uh, industrialized heart in Western Europe. So basically, this kind of connectivity should connect, should go through uh, terrestrial um, links uh, in uh, Central Asia, um, also Russia. But then again, if you look uh, carefully, we meanwhile see that there is another alternative route uh, connecting uh, China uh, with uh, Turkey and um, the Black Sea area, which is why there is an increased interest by Beijing to also facilitate political economic interactions with uh, the former Soviet, um, Soviet bloc in uh, Europe, uh, which is the famous 17 plus 1 initiative. And uh, then again, we have another terrestrial uh, connectivity which uh, goes uh, from uh, China to the Indian Ocean via uh, Pakistan. This is the famous um, uh, economic corridor that also entails, meanwhile, a port. Uh, this is the other port. So basically, there is already a kind of alternative uh, connectivity emerging out of these projects. Um, and uh, this uh, was also part of uh, my question. I very much hope that we will get him back uh, on, on on the live stream. So I will be waiting for some further uh, five uh, five minutes uh, and in order to continue the digital book. Uh, in the meantime, uh, what I also wanted to um, draw your attention to, so he's right now calling me on the on the on the phone 